brought to you by Charity Mobile, the phone company that sends 5% of your monthly plan price to your favorite charity. No contracts, nationwide coverage, risk-free guarantee. Learn more at CharityMobile.com. Blessed First Saturday of Lent. We're going to begin a Lenten journey every Saturday with Reginald Garagou Lagrange, one of the great theologians of the early half of the, 21st, of the 20th century. He was one of the last great minds in the church, at least from my money. And we have here some of his important work talking about grace. And at least in this chapter of, of a seminal work of his, we'll be going over what the goal is of all this penance and fasting and all these other things that we're doing over this Lenten season. Because this Lenten season is really to remind us of the real purpose of our lives, that we are to align our wills with the will of God, that we're to essentially leave behind the old man and embrace the new life that our Lord offers us. And Lent is a great time to do acts of penance for the sins that we have engaged in, to pay that penance in this life instead of doing so in the next, and to make sure that we develop the good habits and virtues that will make it much more likely that we will be greeted with a well-done, good, and faithful servant at our judgment. Sobering, hopefully. So here is Reginald Garagou Lagrange, one of the great minds of the 20th century, on glory and grace. The Goal, Glory and Grace In order to understand what spiritual progress should be, we must first examine the end to which it tends. St. Paul expresses the idea in the text cited above, which is Romans 8, verse 29, namely, a configuration or conformity to the Word of God. We have often been reminded of this divine doctrine, but it is so sublime that we can never pretend to understand it sufficiently. Consequently, if we wish to penetrate its profound meaning, we must gradually rise above ourselves. In attempting to determine our ultimate goal, we shall proceed by exclusion, setting aside the lesser things that the spirit of the world proposes to us, until, after the necessary ascent, we arrive as a true formulation of our supreme end. Why were we made? The world answers. We were made for enjoyment, for pleasure, the pleasures of the body, the senses, the imagination, the intellect, and the heart. Enjoyment! This is to be the end, the rule, the motive of our activity. Such is the principle of paganism, and every day it is becoming more and more that of the present world. At times it is a temptation for Christians also, even for us religious. Evidently such an answer to the problem of life cannot be accepted by the unfortunate of this world who justly feel provoked to anger and exasperation. What sense does it really have for other men? This ideal or norm of life in reality makes a man a servant of the events that procure or take away his pleasures, a servant of his passions and his very desires, a servant of jealousy and anger that rise within him against his own will, a servant of other men who can snatch away the miserable goods that form his happiness. By attempting to place himself at the center of all and to reduce all to himself, the man ruled by pleasure becomes the servant of all. He finds only disillusionment and disgust in the miserable, fleeting possessions that he has made his ultimate end. Moreover, he destroys within himself the very dignity of his manhood, because, animal-like, he lives only for his body. With death he will lose everything, and what is worse, often he does not take into account the terrible punishments that await him. Some persons have sought to live this way even in the religious life. Common life became for them a torment, the religious observances an insupportable yoke. 
They suffered their whole lives and seeking pleasure everywhere, they lost their souls. Then the world corrects its maxim and says to us, The goal of man is an ordered and well-conceived quest for his own interests, a thing not accomplished without work, effort, and sacrifice. To acquire for oneself a position in the world, who would dare to deny that at times this is also a temptation for us? It happens as certain religious work long years to gain a position in the community and to attain some dignity. Everything they do is subordinated to such an objective. The drive is always present, and it would end up having a mastery if God did not restore these religious to the right road with an opportune humiliation. Such an attitude comes from the coldest and most arid egoism. Yet the egoist is not happy. He knows only his pleasures and personal satisfactions, but has destroyed the more noble aspirations of the heart. Everyone avoids him so that his end is sad and solitary. If he thinks about another life, every hope seems denied him. He has lived only for the world, and now he must leave the world. Not even this maxim is satisfactory, and so the world proposes a third, the respect of one's own dignity, that is, fulfilling one's individual and social duties. Such is the indifferent reply which stems from human pride. Man is made to develop his own intellectual and moral personality. In recent years, under the influence of modernism, we have seen this doctrine upheld even in religious circles. The passive virtues of humility, obedience, and patience have been quite depreciated, while the active and social virtues that affirm personal initiative have become exalted. This attitude contains a misapprehension. The man who pretends to love the good through the love of both his own dignity and his personal judgment concerning the good of his own personality, in reality does not love the good but rather adores himself, and believes himself to be a god. If he truly loved the good, he would certainly love even more than himself, and above everything else, the source of every good and of all justice, that is, the good that is God. Pride is always something hard and cold. The person that more or less consciously refuses to humble himself, to obey, to rise above to the love of God, is not able to find happiness, which does not in fact exist in any finite good. Perhaps this person recklessly spends himself in external works, both for the pleasure of spreading his ideas and of dominating. One day or other, this life has to end, and for those lacking charity, death appears as something absurd that comes to destroy in an instant the moral edifice constructed with the efforts of a lifetime. To know and to love God. The light of reason alone shows us that the ultimate end of man consists in knowing God and loving him above all things. If we had been created in a purely natural state, with an immortal soul, but without grace, our ultimate end would be precisely that of knowing and loving God. However, like the great pagan philosophers, we would have known him only through the perfections that exist in his creatures. God would have been for us only the first cause of the universe, the supreme intellect that governs creation. We would have loved him as the author of nature, with a love that exists between inferior and superior. There would not have been any intimacy, only admiration, respect, gratitude, without that gentle and simple familiarity that is in the souls of the sons of God. We would have been the servants, not the sons of God. Such a natural ultimate end is in itself something sublime, and could be pursued and possessed by all. Furthermore, the possession of God on the part of one would neither impede another's possession nor degenerate the least jealousy. It consists of a knowledge that cannot produce satiety, in a love that cannot exhaust the heart. This natural knowledge of God would leave unanswered many mysteries concerning the manner in which the divine perfections are interrelated. For example, the most inexorable justice with the most gentle mercy. The human intellect could do nothing less than exclaim, Oh, if only I could see this God, source of all truth and goodness. If only it were given to me to contemplate this flaming sun from which the life of creation comes, the life of intelligence and the energy of the will. Our true end, according to Revelation, is to know God as he knows himself, to see him face to face as he sees himself, directly and not through creatures. 
God was in no way obliged to grant us participation in his intimate life, but he could do so and through pure mercy wished to do so. We teach, says St. Paul, what scripture calls the things that no eye has seen and no ear has heard, things beyond the mind of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. What the great men of this world and the masters of human wisdom have not known, these are the very things that God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit reaches the depths of everything, even the depths of God. St. John writes, An eternal life is this, to know you the only true God. And, my dear people, we are already the children of God, but what we are to be in the future has not yet been revealed. All we know is that when it is revealed we shall be like him because we shall see him as he really is. For me, explains the psalmist, the reward of virtue is to see your face. And on waking, to gaze my fill on your likeness. The face-to-face vision of God is infinitely superior to the most sublime philosophy. We are destined to contemplate all the divine perfections, concentrated and harmonized in their first principle, to understand how one and the same love gives life to the most gentle mercy and the most inflexible justice, thus uniting in itself seemingly opposite attributes. We are destined to see how this love is identified with pure wisdom, how it embraces nothing that is not infinitely wise, and how all wisdom is changed into love. We are called to see this love that is identified with the supreme good that has been loved from eternity to see divine wisdom that is identified with the first truth that has always been known. We are called to contemplate the eminent, the eminent simplicity of God, this absolute pureness, this epitome of all perfections. Who will be able to tell the joy that such a vision will produce, even if now we are already entranced by the reflection of God's perfections, scattered as they are in some measure among his creatures, by the enchantment of the sensible world, by the harmony of colors and sounds, and still more by the splendor of souls as revealed in his saints. Finally, we are called to see the infinite fruitfulness of this divine nature, which subsists in three persons, to contemplate face to face the eternal generation of the word, splendor of the Father and image of his substance, to see the ineffable spiration of the Holy Spirit, this torrent of spiritual flame, the mutual love of Father and Son, which from all eternity unites them in a most absolute reciprocal self-giving. Such a vision will produce in us a love of God so strong, so absolute, that nothing can ever destroy it nor even diminish it. It will produce a love built on admiration, respect, and gratitude, but above all on friendship, with the simplicity and familiarity that this love presupposes. Through such a love we will enjoy above all else that God is God. It is infinitely holy, infinitely merciful, infinitely just. It is a love that will make us adhere to all the decrees of his providence in view of his glory urging us to subject ourselves to what pleases him so that he may reign eternally in us. Everlasting life for us will be to know God as he knows himself, to love him as he loves himself. Looking at this more thoroughly makes evident that such a knowledge and love cannot be realized in us unless God first defies us in a certain manner in the depths of our soul. In the natural order, man is capable of intellectual knowledge and of an illumined love superior to corporal love only because he possesses a spiritual soul. The situation is the same in the supernatural order where, our, where we are incapable of divine knowledge and divine love unless we first receive something of the very nature of God, unless our soul is deified in some way, that is to say, transformed in God. The blessed in heaven can participate in the divine operations in the very life of God, precisely because they have received this nature from him, just as a son receives his nature from his father. From all eternity, God necessarily generates a son, similar to himself, the word. He communicates to him his nature without dividing or multiplying it. He makes him God of God, light of light, the splendor of his substance. 
purely gratuitously, he has wished to have other sons in time, adopted sons through a sonship that is not only mortal, but real, since the love of God for his creature adds a new perfection. He has loved us, and this creative love has made us participate in the very principle of his intimate life. They are the ones he chose specially long ago and intended to become true images of his son, so that his son might be the eldest of many brothers, says St. Paul. In this is found precisely the essence of the glory that God reserves for those he loves. The things that no eye has seen and no ear has heard, things beyond the mind of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. The elect will become part of the very family of God as they enter into the circle of the Holy Trinity. In them the Father will generate his word. The Father and the Son will issue forth love. Charity will assimilate them to the Holy Spirit, and meanwhile the vision will assimilate them to the Word, who in turn will make them similar to the Father whose expression he is. At that time we will be able to say truly that we know and love the Trinity that dwells in us as in a temple of glory, and we shall be in the Trinity, at the summit of being, thought, and love. This is the glory, this is the goal to which our spiritual progress tends, configuration to the Word of God. The spiritual life is able to tend to such an exalted end only because it presupposes in us the seed of glory. That is a supernatural spiritual life which is basically identified with everlasting life. The acorn could not become an oak unless it were of the same species and had essentially the same life as the grown tree. The child could not become a man unless he already possessed a human nature, even though in an imperfect state. In the same way, the Christian on earth could not become one of the blessed in heaven unless he had previously received the divine life. To understand thoroughly the essence of the acorn, it is necessary to consider this essence in its perfect state in an oak tree. In the same way, if we wish to understand the essence of the life of grace in us, we must consider it as an embryonic form of everlasting life, as the very seed of glory, Simmons Gloria. Fundamentally, it is the same divine life, but two differences are to be noted. Here below we know God only obscurely through faith and not in the direct light of vision. Moreover, through the inconstancy of our free will, we can lose supernatural life, while in heaven it is impossible to be lost. Except for these two differences, it is a question of the same divine life. The Holy Spirit already spoke through the mouth of Ezekiel. I shall pour clean water over you, and you will be cleansed. I shall give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. To the Samaritan woman, Jesus spoke. But anyone who drinks the water that I shall give will never be thirsty again. The water that I shall give will turn into a spring inside him, willing up to eternal life. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me. Let the man come and drink who believes in me. As scripture says, from his breast shall flow fountains of living water. Mine is not a kingdom of this world, for you must know the kingdom of God is among you. Like the grain of a mustard seed, this leaven that ferments the dough, or the treasure hidden in the field, the kingdom outwardly does not make a striking appearance. Yet the life of grace is basically identical with that in heaven. Jesus said so. Without doubt, while on earth we cannot see God with clarity of vision, and yet truly it is He whom we attain with our faith because we believe His word that already reveals to us the profundity of God. Now, instead of the spirit of the world, we have received the spirit that comes from God to teach us to understand the gifts that he has given us. Therefore, we teach not in the way in which philosophy is taught, but in the way that the spirit teaches us. We teach spiritual things spiritually. An unspiritual person is one who does not accept anything of the spirit of God. He sees it all as nonsense. It is beyond his understanding because it can only be understood by means of the spirit. Only faith can guarantee or prove the existence of the unseen. 
Certainly supernatural life, grace can be lost, but that comes from the fact that we can go astray and fail. Grace, however, the charity in us, is in itself absolutely incorruptible. Like spring water that can be preserved for an indeterminate period of time, provided its container does not break, or like an indestructible force that would never cease working, so long as the instruments it makes use of do not refuse to work. For love is strong as death. Love is strong, like death, and nothing can resist it. Its ardor is the blaze of fire, the flame of Yahweh. Love no flood can quench, no torrents drown. It triumphs over persecutions, over the most terrible afflictions and the powers of hell. We too will be invincible if we allow ourselves to be penetrated by this love. No created force will be able to overcome us. This love then is identical with that of heaven. It presupposes that we have been born not out of human stock or urge of the flesh or will of man, but of God himself. That we are the sons and friends of God and not merely his servants. That we participate even in this life in the very nature and infinite life of God. We treat an adopted yet real sonship because the gratuitous love of God is essentially active in relation to us, making us similar to him, just and holy in his eyes, worthy of life everlasting. Now we can understand why Revelation teaches us that in our present state, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. It is certain that in heaven, the whole Trinity dwells in the soul of the blessed, as in a temple of glory in which it is known and loved. On the other hand, it is not said that the Word dwells in us here below, inasmuch as He is not yet manifested to us as the Word, as the splendor of the Father. Likewise, we do not say that the Father, the principle of the Son, dwells in us, but we do say this of the Holy Spirit, of substantial love. Through this love, God has made us His sons. In fact, in our present state, charity, identical with that of heaven, assimilates us to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit principle of our charity is as the heart of our heart, the vivifying source that renews and sanctifies our life. He consoles us in the pains of exile, continually draws us more toward the everlasting life of the Word, always conforming us more to the Son, who in turn will assimilate us definitely to the Father in heaven. Consequently, the Holy Spirit dwells in us and makes us feel His presence. We perceive the Holy Spirit with an experiential knowledge, wholly permeated the love which proceeds from the gift of wisdom. The Holy Spirit is with us as friend with friend, a strong friend who never abandons us but always cares for our moral wounds, fortifying and elevating us, comforter, vivifier, renewer, sanctifier. In this way, God dwells in infants, whereas he did not dwell in the greatest pagan philosophers. He delights in making his presence felt in the hearts of the most humble Christians, while he does not make himself felt to the theologian infatuated with his abstract and speculative science. Behold the mustard seed in us, if we only understood the gift of God, if we only understood, as St. Paul tells us, that it is superior to the gift of prophecy, to the gift of miracles, to the science of angels. Miracles and prophecies are only signs that permit man to recognize the word of God, whereas grace, charity, makes it possible for God himself to live in us and make us live with his love, thereby disposing us immediately to everlasting life. Since it is the principle of all merit, Every work that does not proceed from it is dead, fruitless for salvation. It is the progress, the development of this seed, that we must study, already knowing the goal to which it tends. We shall begin by considering the obstacles that could compromise or completely impede its growth. Lord, make us understand the infinite value of everlasting life, which you have placed in us. Infuse in our heart a deep hatred of evil that could make us lose it. Teach us in a practical way how it ought to grow in us, that we may become like to you and merit to be called your brothers and friends in the kingdom of heaven. That is a classic reflection from Reginald Garrigou Lagrange, Father Reginald Garrigou Lagrange, from his work Knowing the Love of God.
I plan to bring you a full chapter of this every single Saturday between now and Easter that to hopefully make your Lenten journey more efficacious. Let me know what you thought of this in the comments. Does this, does this make a lot of sense to you? Is this accessible to the typical person? And I ask that because some of other, some of other, the, uh, of Lagrange's work is, um, pretty high, high bar stuff, you know, heavy into theology where it is clear that this is meant for to be read by people who are not theologians to understand that our purpose in this life is to essentially to know and love God in this life so that we may know and love and be with him in the next. I mean, it's just classic Catholic stuff, really. I'm curious what you thought of this. So let me know in the comments, please. And thanks to the patrons of this channel for their support. I was able to buy, you know, books like this because of them. So thank you for their support. As always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.